Welcome to the Bailey, where nerve stapling the drones is a legitimate political argument. I'm your host, Yassine Masood. Yassine Masood. I cannot say my name. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the philosophy of neo-reactionaryism. Ism. Neo-reactionaryism? Neo-reaction. 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 So we'll go around and you'll introduce yourself and also provide a very brief snippet on your position on neo-reactionary or NRX as the cool kids call it. So let's start with the great Jasoni. Um, I am great Jasoni. I'm not quite a reactionary, but I am on the right. And I do agree with most of a lot of what I read. Um, mostly the stuff about, um, you know, how democracy is terrible and, um, you know, uh, you shouldn't participate in the political system, etc. But besides that, I'm mostly not really concerned with politics. I have kind of my own aesthetic agenda and neo-reaction is just something that I think is really interesting. Cool. Kulak, welcome back. Hi, I'm Kulak Revolt. I'm the most reactive person you know. Compared to Moldbug himself, I'd say I'm probably more reactive. Um, I'd say he's rather inert. Wow, those are some fighting words. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Marlo. Hi, I'm Marlo. Uh, I would, my position on the reaction is probably closest to Nick Land. I think it's... Um, it's a very interesting intellectual movement and a sign of the times that it's occurred. But um, while I agree with some of their points, um, I think they're they're missing the uh, they're missing the uh, forest for the trees. They're missing the really big picture of um, techno of technopolitics uh, and the future of the political um, in favor of the sort of technical solutions which um, uh, liberal ideologies uh, and um, Socialist ideologies have been attempting uh, for decades now. All right. Welcome back, Trace. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm Trace. And uh, honestly, I think the whole thing is a bit silly. But at the same time, I'm fascinated by the way it's been built into a movement and the, I guess, the aesthetic focus of it that Great Jason was mentioning is something that I think other movements and other perspective movements should take note of. So I think it is most valuable as something to uh, learn from for the purpose of building other things. And uh, to put down my cards, I'm kind of puzzled by the philosophy of neo-reaction. I, can, I think uh, we're going to talk about this, but I, at some points it's, I either find it unfounded by the evidence or that it would inevitably mirror or enact what is popularly known as anarcho-capitalism. So we'll get into that. Uh, let's start with the, um, a good starting point is perhaps our friend of the pod, Slate, Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander, and how he wrote reactionary philosophy in an enormous planet-sized nutshell. Our uh, very own Tracing Woodgrains also did uh, a summary on the MOT. It's this cool subreddit that everyone should subscribe to about kind of like a, trying to summarize the philosophy and ethos behind behind the movement. Who wants to give kind of like an overview of what neo-reaction... God, I'm, I'm going to keep fucking that up. Who wants to give like a broad overview of uh, the philosophy of neo-reaction? Neo 
Kulak. Um, so near reaction is kind kind of comes out of Mench's Moldbug Curtis Yarvin kind of comes out of the Rothbardian Libertarian wing, essentially a burnt out Ron Paul type Libertarian, and <laughs> essentially what what he did was he went from like the optimistic aesthetics of Ron Ron Paul, the idea of the American Republic as this dream, and went hardcore into real nihilism about the Amer- American project. Um, and where he ended up, up throughout his long series of conclusions, tracing it back through the history of progressivism, the history of communism in the U.S., and tracing those roots back through the American founding, right back to to the Puritans at Plymouth Rock having witch hunts that look disturbingly like like the purges that social are having to this day or the woke are having to this day these kind of circular firing squads is he came to the conclusion that the point where history went wrong is is essentially when the Stuart line was over overthrown and King Charles the first was beheaded and the real problem with the world is that monarch absolute monarchy was put down and essentially to unpack that you need to unload a series of interlocking ideas. The Hobbesian argument against democracy, which is that, A, it doesn't really exist, aside from an organization of violent mobs, pretty much. The argument against the limited government, which is, again, it doesn't exist. You're just creating a different algorithm with absolute power. And broadly, his argument for what the optimal organization principles of any organization are. So he sees monarchy as directly paralleling the corporate structure of a business or the ownership structure of a house household. And just as you don't get parasitizing organizational decay in your personal household, at least as long as you don't have the worst family in the world, so too in a monarchy do you not see the organizational parasiting decay that you see in democratic institutions. And from this, he broadens it out with lots of arguments, but essentially he comes to the conclusion that right-wing thought, reactionary thought, functionally stands for order, order, good governance, and due to that, liberty in a large respect. And that left-wing thought is fundamentally the ideology of decay, parasitism, and social looting, etc. And he lays this out in quite compelling detail. But, again, there's a reason he writes 100,000 words, because every point summarized in loose detail either sounds like a straw man or just sounds straight-up ridiculous. It's an ideology that very aggressively demands that you either engage with it wholly or just get chased off. Yeah, so that's a common uh, criticism of uh, Mencius Moldbug. That's why there's so many, I guess, like helpful readers that try to familiarize the curious on the philosophy. So the, on background, Mencius Moldbug, a.k.a. what's his real name? Curtis something? Curtis Jarvin. So Curtis Jarvin, he is a programmer, right? He's a software developer living in the United States. What's, what's his story? I actually don't know that much. Marlo. I can talk a little bit about this. Uh, 
So Jochen um, was uh, he was a computer programmer. Not sure exactly what he was working on when he was Mensch's Moldbug, but um, he wrote the book. He wrote the blog anonymously, but um, name got out, of course, and then it made a little bit of a um, over him being disinvited from conferences and so on because of it. But um, then, um, since retiring the blog, he went to uh, found a startup called Urbit, which uh, does not exactly apply sort of neo reactionary ideas to. Uh, the internet, but um, is definitely inspired by a very Moldbuggian way of thinking. For instance, uh, arguing that um, people will, if given an incentive, people will not engage in um, malicious behavior because it will reduce the, the value of their personal server, that sort of thing. Um, so, and um, he has just uh, fin- he's just left Orbit after the uh, basic code base has been completed and is now. Um, writing again under his personal name for um, magazines like The American Mind and uh, his own Substack newsletter. So uh, how does everyone feel about Kulak's uh, summary of the philosophy? Is it accurate? Does anyone want to add anything? I would say it's an accurate, it's an accurate summary of Moldbug's um, historical narrative, but that his um, philosophy is a little bit more complicated. And he explicitly starts out with asking the Habesian question, which is... Um, how can we reduce violence in politics? How can we minimize the amount of violence needed uh, to for a regime to function? Both uh, state violence and private violence occurring because of state weakness. Uh, from there, he goes on to, um, again, make a sort of Habesian move, but make a very an interesting move, which very few modern uh, political theorists uh, will agree with or even acknowledge, which is that he believes that um, the root of violence... Uh, and uh, the problems we see in politics generally, parasitism, organizational decay, and so on, and are a result of insecure power structures and the competition for power that results. So um, when Moldbug is talking about absolute monarchy, he doesn't really mean um, the monarchy of the Stuarts, which um, if it was absolute, Charles Stuart wouldn't have lost his head. What do you mean, what do you mean monarchy of the Stuarts? Uh- uh, when you talk about the Charles Stewart, the Civil War, the Stuarts being overthrown, that sort of thing, where Kulak said... Who who is the Stuarts? Charles I and Charles II were part of the Stuart dynasty of English kings that were overthrown in the Civil War. Well, Charles I was overthrown, and then uh, Charles II was uh, brought back in and then uh, tossed out again. But um, why, why is that incident heralded as, as an example? I... Moldbug likes to make a lot of it rhetorically, but it's sort of when um, the kind of Puritan uh, parliamentary supremacy um, way of uh, outlook, which he traced, which he then traces to uh, the Whig Party in the U- in the UK, the founding of the United States, um, and then socialism and uh, and modern liberal democracy. That's um, that's where he's that's where he sees it at that uh, historical movement as beginning. So he sees the the Stuart dynasty as a sort of turning point or apex? Or that um, that was the point at which, um, sort, of like, uh, sort of like the French Revolution in France, that was the point at which the um, historical trends, uh, the con- social conditions and political uh, uh, movements became such that um, absolute monarchy fa- was, no longer, was no longer sustainable when it faced a movement... Um, was too great for it to handle and uh, was it, which and which successfully wrested power away from absolute monarchs into the hands of an elected body. 
And what year was that? That was um, the early 17th century. Kulak. I am actually quite passionate about this this part of um, Moldbug's philosophy, um, having studied seven, the 17th century like pretty extensively through like 17th century literature. And I, I'd say you you summarize it, Marlo, but you've really understated it. Um, I'd summarize Moldbug as saying that that the English Civil War is really the point at which Satan destroyed the Garden of Eden and ca- cast the world out. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, essentially, communism, progress- progressivism, the decline of classical architecture, the decline of classical classical art, the death of hundreds of millions in the 21st century, the censorship of thought, he all ties them back into essentially the the radical Calvinist um, Puritan ideology that the English Civil War represent the victory of. So to give a taste of just one one very minor event in the English Civil War that has a paragraph on Wikipedia, um, the Puritans essentially, as soon as they gain control of London, they burn down the Globe Theater, never, and it wasn't rebuilt again until 1998. And they also banned... Banned the theater that existed since Elizabethan times, so the successors to um, Shakespeare and Marlowe essentially couldn't put on on plays. They waged the first war on Christmas. Um, they essentially essentially tried to abolish the holiday, make everyone go to work that day, and bar drunken revelry. Their experiment failed. They didn't have anywhere near the enforcement mechanisms to achieve social control at that that level. Um, they were living in the 17th century, but they tried to institute social control that ex- that extreme, and Moldbug sees that tradition continuing essentially throughout the entire American experiment after the Puritans were expelled or self-exiled to Massachusetts. Um, he has an excellent... Um, Nick Land actually has an excellent chapter how the how Massachusetts conquered the, the world... That essentially relays how this ideology, this eclectic English ideology that was bent on total control, wound up dominating the world, invading everywhere from the Philippines to Afghanistan. It sounds eclectic, the focus on the Stuart reign and the English Civil War, but it really is the moment where Moldbug sees essentially the entirety of the, the right's enemies taking hold and never letting go. So when we're discussing this topic, there's there, you know, you can boil it down to two camps. There's the reaction and then there's progressivism in reading the material for this uh, episode. uh, It's been kind of confusing to keep track of exactly who is on which side. So for example, Moldbug does spend quite a, quite a lot of time disavowing Stalin and Hitler because they're the 20th century baddies and he doesn't want any, hint of implication that he is in favor of a dictatorship like Stalin or uh, Hitler's. So, and so he, he describes Stalin as kind of like the logical conclusion of progressivism or democracy and same with uh, Hitler. And so it's, it's kind of hard to tell them exactly like what is the, um, what is the defining line that separates these two camps because the definitions seem to be slippery, and perhaps that is like an uncharitable interpretation. So who wants to chime in on that? Trace? I can add 
uh, his perspective on Hitler, um, I'd say is something of a not real communism perspective is my uncharitable description of it, where he uses the analogy of wine and sewage. You uh, put a drop of wine in sewage. What do you have? Sewage. You put a drop of sewage in wine. What do you have? Sewage. To describe how Hitler was reaction uh, polluted with democracy. And that's why it all went so wrong with Hitler. Like, if you could just have pure reaction, if you could just have pure communism, you know, uh, then it would work out. But with that pollution, then it doesn't quite. Yeah, so he does identify Hitler as being reactionary. But his excuse for Hitler being really bad is essentially it was corrupted with democracy. Kulak. I'd, I'd agree generally. There is a very coherent logic to to how he describes Hitler. He does describe Hitler as being a react, a reactionary, someone who's using reactionary, a right word base, a right word influence. But the issue with, essentially, he identifies progressivism and communism as the ideology of a cast of people, namely the intellectuals, the priestly c- class. And he identifies reaction as being tied to a, the old warrior aristocratic elite, and B, the the petite bourgeois, the petty la- landowners, the townies. If you live in a if you live in a um, university town, the townies who own land, rent to the university students, but are ultimately of a lower class than them, even if they might have more money of them due to their their cycle in life. And what he identifies is that Hitler was engaging the classical reactionary reactionary um casts the warrior lead the the volk but essentially hitler's ideology was we want the german kaiser but we want want a democratic kaiser and we want a more socialist kaiser so even if you look at at germany in 1940 in terms of its actual institutions it's vastly to the left of even even 1918 Germany in terms of its actual institutions, its actual structure, its actual setup, setup. It's still having referendums. It's still having some limited forms of democracy and certainly having more socialized institutions. It's just, it was an alliance of the reactionary base around a democratic socialist figure. So in terms of the actual structures that were put in place in, in the Nazi ideology, they're all vaguely progressive. It's just um, Michael Malice has a, a quote: "Conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit, while Nazism is is progressivism taking a be- step back two years." So the no, the Nazis essentially took two steps back and said, "No, we're going to have 1914 again. We're going to invade f- France again." It's just they were also going to do that with with a more socialist government and a democratically elected leader. So Kulak, you're, you're largely in agreement that Nazism represented a manifestation of progressivism, right? I'd say it was a manifestation of the reactionary base in progressive institutions. Okay. So if someone was to ask, like, what facets would you look for in order to determine whether society is largely reactionary or largely progressivism? Jasoni. 
it's kind of hard to disentangle the two of them because without progressivism, there would be nothing to react against. Like there was no such thing as reactionism back in like the days of the English Civil War, I guess before the English Civil War, like before that happened, you could not be against the monarchy or against, you know, you could not really be a revolutionary or belonging to some older, you know, better time because it just things had been the same for about a millennia. Um, you know, the, the last revolution was maybe like, uh, I guess the Roman empire, something like that. It wasn't really, uh, there was nothing to go back to. And I, I think a lot of Moldbug's uh, meta narrative rests on kind of this idea that things have been trending left where the left always wins for the past, you know, four or 500 years, something like that. Um, and so to say that a society is progressive or like more progressive or more reactionary, I think kind of it, it, it acts like there's a symmetry when there really isn't one. There is, uh, they're not opposites. Um, reaction is just kind of a side effect of progressivism. It isn't, you know, progressivism is the the water we breathe, and reaction is just kind of saying, um, you know, here's we can point it out instead of just kind of swimming in it. So, Greg Jasoni, the there's still it's still possible to make a distinction between whether an institution is reactionary or progressivism, right? Mm. What about if a society? is more one way or the other. I know you just said that they're not necessarily opposites, but what I'm trying to discern here is how do you how do you tell that you're going in the quote-unquote right direction when it comes to reactionary philosophy? Kulak. I can summarize this briefly. The big distinction between a reactionary institution and a progressive institution is whether it's it's being controlled and governed for the benefit of the person who has property in that institution who owns it or whether it's being owned and governed for the benefit of the people or the public broadly defined. And that but might, but that seems to be like a definitional problem because you can just make the, the public broadly defined all of a sudden they're, they're shareholders in this country. And then suddenly you're, you're working for the benefit of property and that's indistinguishable from working from the benefit of the people. And suddenly socialism becomes reaction. Yeah. I, I disagree strongly. So, for example, the Ford Motor Motor Company, it has em, it has employees who build cars, em, who might be consumers who buy car, cars, and who might own stock in the Ford Motor Company. The Ford Motor Company, however, is only governed for the benefit of the share, shareholders. So if you own stock, it's governed for your benefit. If you're an employee, you have to provide some value or you're... Or you're out. And you might fulfill three roles. You might be an employee who works at the Ford Motor Company, who drives a Ford, and who owns stock in the Ford Motor Company. But they're only interested in the shareholders. They will fire you in a heartbeat. If there's a feature you really like and it's not profitable to deliver that feature, feature they aren't going to deliver that feature. It's just going to be to drive shareholder holder value. And that's that broadly defined is what Moldbug looks at. So, Tracing, go ahead. Yeah, that just that doesn't address the concern. Um, take the Mondragon Corporation, for example, in Spain, uh, which is one of the largest uh, cooperative companies in the world. It's a federation of worker cooperatives that employs some seventy five thousand people, and all of them are, as far as I understand, are shareholders, um, which is this socialist dream. Per your definition, it would also suddenly become this reactionary dream where. Because it it's is also an anarcho-capitalist dream, too. Right. So 
are co-ops just the answer for everyone? If we have co-ops, does every corner ideology just win? My instinct and Moldbug's instinct would probably be that that co-op is either A, kind of by accident, incredibly well-governed for mysterious reasons, B, receiving tons of investment from from essentially the government or receiving some form of rent from the state that allows it to function, or B, that's either that's hit hit the sweet spot where it's a co-op, but it's governed on a property structure. Now, that being said, neither I nor Moldbug would really expect the average co-op that gets set up to really be gov- governed that way. And actually, co-ops kind of become come a bit of a joke you set up a workers co-op and then within 10 to 20 years only five work only five people are classified as workers at the co-op everyone else is classified as a contractor and that's traditionally how co-ops progress or they just kind of collapse in in on themselves so co-ops to the extent they work they very quickly wind up mimicking a property structure and to the extent they don't work well they don't stick around. Can you be more specific about what you mean by mimicking a property structure? Oh, so um, the classic example is you set up a workers' co-op of your factory. All 20 workers who work there have property in it, and it goes for a while. It kind of shrink, shrinks down, and those 20 workers, when they hire new people, they never bring them in as a, a new worker. They bring them in as a contractor who doesn't have property property in it they're just supplying labor so the property structure in essence is the structure some structure that mimics mimics property where where it's owned by an equity the owner and governed for their benefit and they they derive all the benefit from it and they derive all the and they exercise all the control over it so moldbug's classic example in governance is of course a monarch who ideally has full property over the country, has inherited it down five lines from his great-great-great-great-grandfather. No one else can really exercise control over it. He knows where all the bodies buried are buried. He knows where all the secret passageways are. He knows where the stores of armor are. And he has the alliances with the wood elves that he can call in at a second notice if he feels that it's necessary. Isn't that the same argument for a dictatorship, though? Um, no. Yes, but no. I mean, they, pr- presumably they would have the same incentive structure of, you know, keeping the goose fed while they take on a, a sliver. So essentially a good dictatorship, a successful usurpation, will, m- will wind up mimicking the monarchy pretty directly if the king's brother murders the king and takes over the family and the country not much in the governance structure changes same with if say the third general overthrows the first general and becomes the new generalissimo the governance structure doesn't really change the big problem with dictatorship though is essentially the longer a governance line continues functionally the more institutions are set up around it continuing functionally so the big difference would be how the dictator comes to power. So if, say, it's a socialist revolution that installs a dictator, well, all the key decision makers are people who, for the past six or seven decades, have been amassing stakeholders in the interest of overthrowing the government, 
government. So you install a dic- dictator socialist. All suddenly, instead of having the ten key stakeholders that say the king's brother would would have, who keep the country functioning well, who have their own property stakes in different sections of the com- country, and who know how to make it function, instead you have Stalin at the top and all the workers' cooperatives around the country who their entire structure is based around essentially extracting rents from the central government or overthrowing the central government or or some kind of banditry. So you install Stalin, all those people are still robbing trains, to, robbing trains, looting, um, extorting fact, factory owners. Their income, income stream and their their essentially competitive advantage hasn't changed. So if you're Stalin, the fix to get to a semi-functional Soviet Union by 1950 is to just start killing every every key decision maker in the Soviet Union until you've kind of replicated the SARS nation somewhat, but with with statues of Lenin instead of statues instead of instead of churches. But but the actual the actual structure between say say a king or a very established dictator who might be usurped by his brother or another general and say a socialist dictator who rides to power on on a wave of the criminals and looters in the country and then and then murders all the key business interests and generals that's going to be a vastly worse country just because all the decision makers and all the core structures in the company country that have worked have been destroyed. But so wouldn't you have the same issue in a monarchy? Because you, you always have like a monarch always has to govern with the consent of the feudal Lords. If you, if you want to talk about feudalism, because they're the ones that are going to legitimize the line of succession, uh, either to legitimize his place on the throne or legitimize his ability to make decisions about succession. So it's not this like, sole proprietor of a country it is someone with an immense power but he's also governing with the consent of the aristocrat so the to borrow your metaphor of the proprietorship to make the distinction between a an internal usurpation versus a a socialist revolution if if the ceo of the company gets overthrown by the VP of sales, not much in the company changes. Whereas if, say, all the factory workers at Amazon form form a coalition, go and murder Jeff Bezos, and then start murdering their way through all the VPs of Amazon to install themselves in those positions, all suddenly everything at Amazon stops working. So the, so the big thing, essentially Moldbug's key insight, is that building a functional country and building a functional company are very similar under undertakings that essentially it's it's about installing effective effective people to govern effective portfolios and weeding out the ones that become little fiefdoms but fiefdoms that essentially exist on parasitizing the other five fiefdoms and and that's the key key insight so a functioning country country winds up looking like a hierarchy of property owners where every where essentially your relation to your your individual house that you're governing effective effectively 
it's under the rule of the state, which might be the local knight who's governing his house effectively, which might include all the lands, which is in turn answers to the local lord who it mimics that, who in turn answers to the king who mimics that, where it's a chain of property property and established knowledge and effective knowledge where the governance ownership and ownership for the, for the benefit of the owner is clearly established. So a good dictatorship maintains, maintains that structure. A bad dictatorship or a socialist dictatorship is essentially revolves around inverting that structure. So putting, putting the teenage daughter in charge of the household, putting the beggar in charge of the town, putting, putting the union officer in charge of the, the factory, people who essentially have a, exist to, extra, to try and extract resources from the institution, all suddenly they're in a position where they can extract all the resources they want, but they don't have any of the knowledge, know-how, or institutional structures in place to govern that institution on any time horizon that would actually maximize its output. All right, who wants to respond to Kulak? Okay, Tracing, go ahead. One thing that I want to get back to early on is um, your response immediately to the Mondragon Corporation, because I think it highlights for me a really major problem of a lot of these grand narratives that pop up, which is that it's basically an answer before you ask the question. So uh, Moldbug paints in these really broad sweeping terms about history of this is the way it went, this is how everything went, and he paints a really compelling aesthetic picture. Um, and you can like you can poke at these little bits of it, and you can say, well, actually this bit didn't happen this way, and this bit was kind of an absurd statement, and this is odd. But it misses the whole picture, and it misses what people are drawn to in it, um, is this overall compelling... Uh, theory of everything, almost, of this is how things work. Anyway, once you have that picture, you start slotting everything into it and explaining things in terms of it. So, for example, when you see a corporation like that, rather than analyzing it on its own terms, you say, to the extent it worked, it was because this, it mirrored this grand narrative. To the extent it didn't work, it was because of the degree to which it diverged from this grand narrative. And it makes it in some ways, a little bit unfalsifiable in that everything good gets swept up into it and everything bad, you just point and say, well, see, that's exactly what we're trying to get rid of. So that's a lot of the impression I get from part of that. I think noticing the value of competence hierarchies and such is a really important point. And I'm extremely focused on the role of expertise, on the role of competence and such. I don't think that needs anywhere near the rest of the narrative that he gives around it to look at it and say, well, yes, competence is critical and figuring out how to have ideal competence hierarchies is valuable. Um, so, yeah, that's a lot of where my mind went while you were saying all of that. Great, Jasoni, go ahead. Um, I, 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 I agree with what you said, although I think it's applied to like ide ideologies in general, but a, a lot of this problem is implicit in focusing on systems of government, right? In that, um, you know, when we're talking about systems of government, we kind of, we approximate everything out of the equation and we think, well, if we could only find the, you know, correct way to arrange this governance, then we could solve, you know, we could, you know, get into this utopian thing or we could account for all these problems. It's just, you know, it's part of the, 
simplified way we're forced to look at the world. And specifically in this conversation is I think, you know, what Kulak is saying in response to Yassin. And I, I think where you're coming from is you're implicitly in favor of democracy or you're implicitly anti-monarchy. And so there, it's kind of hard to say that, you know, okay, yes. Um, Wait, are you talking about me? Yes, or at least in questioning this, in being against the monarchy, or and and, you know, no, no, I wouldn't say. I actually wouldn't say that I'm implicitly in favor of democracy necessarily. Oh well, okay. I I guess a better way of phrasing that is that, um, like, you you don't even have to establish that monarchy solves everybody's problems, or that um, to the degree a corporation is successful is because it mimics monarchy. It's that um, you could really just make a negative proposition, and that. to, for something to be successful, it ought like it needs to mimic monarchy. Or if it mimics monarchy, then you eliminate a lot of problems. And the issue with okay, okay, I, I think here's a better way of phrasing what I meant by implicit is that your comparison to dictatorships, right? Uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to harp on is that the um, when we are looking at a dictatorship, we have a negative connotation to that, and you know, obviously we should, but it's not. Um, that's just because there's been so many shitty dictators. It's you know, we think dictatorship, we think you know, um, Pol Pot or something. We think Hitler. It's not a you know, but if you have the pr- proper competence hierarchy established, then you know, you would want a benevolent dictator as your ideal in governance. And then I think in focusing on just well. You know, if we're reducing the problem down to, okay, well, which system of government is this or that, you know, then we will always be falling back into that trap that tracing is pointed out. But that's true of anything, right? It's we just have to find the correct incentive structure for aligning the competence hierarchy. And that's, you know, that could be the same thing as a system of government. It could be, uh, it could be secondary to it. It's not, they're not exactly the same issue. And so I think in, I, I guess, trying to reduce the, the argument of monarchy to, well, if it's like monarchy, you know, that would clearly not work, but if we could just get to the right competence hierarchy outside of, like, if we separate the two problems, then um, I think it still works. Well, the reason I brought up dictatorship is not necessarily because I'm pro democracy. It's more because you can point to the flaws of dictatorship as basically someone renting, using a country like they would a rental car, where they're trying to extract as many resources for, for personal gain as well as a collateral gain for anyone that's. Uh, helps them stay in power to the detriment of everyone else. And it's pretty easy to point out, point out examples where this is exactly happening. And so my question is if, is if Moldbug is presenting the idea of running a country like they, you would a company, how do you prevent them from basically just acting like they're in the resource excavation build, uh, business where they're just trying to acquire as many resources from the country as fast as possible? Okay, so this is where the pro-democracy implicit part I'm getting into is that you're saying, okay, how do we prevent this failure mode as if democracy would prevent the failure mode or as no. if there is some kind no, of alternative no, no. I'm not, to avoiding I'm not that? Saying no, that. I'm not saying that okay, so democracy saying is a guarantee against that. Uh, because if, if you well, ask so me So what for, guarantees do we have? Well, like uh, democracy can be a guarantee in, if you structure it properly, but not necessarily so. And if you ask me like for my own policy preferences – I tend to be an anarcho-capitalist, at least ideally, uh, because, uh, well, first, like for a variety of reasons, but the point is I'm not opposed to uh, a place like Singapore where it's run Mm. sort of like a a corporation and it seems to be working more or less uh, pretty well by by any reasonable standard. Uh, So I'm not a... a, a, And and even like when uh, Hong Kong was under colonial rule, I'm not against that on a philosophical basis. I actually don't care about 
voice that much. I don't care about Mm -hmm. people's ability to vote. I don't vote. Um, I don't really give a shit about voting as long as, uh, there's some sort of mechanism that puts competent people in positions of power. That's fine. The United States is okay. It definitely could be better. It's not the worst. Uh, and I only say the United States is like a proxy for democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not its not an idea that I'm married to. Okay, I think we're mostly in agreement. I don't mean to straw man you. I just meant that in... In your, you know, in pointing out, like trying to see where that failure mode is, that there's this kind of background assumption that there's a, you know, there are ways of solving the problem or that monarchy somehow eliminates this is, oh, well, now that you've, um, you know, you've gone to just this one thing, then you have now, okay, now you've exacerbated the problem. And I don't think that it really, I mean, I don't think we've shown that. What do you mean by, by exasperate the problem? Which problem are you referring to? Of of picking somebody correct in the competence hierarchy that won't be a rent seeker. Right. I mean, that seems to be a problem that gets magnified the smaller the government that you have, right? No, not necessarily. Because, because the, the choice, hold on, the, the choice becomes much more consequential because it's uh, seated in the hands of a single person or, you know, a cadre, a small cadre of people. Yeah, I mean, okay, and I, I guess then maybe that is what I would mean. Okay, let's not use the term democracy, but I mean, if we're looking at kind of the Moldbuggian scale of you know chaos versus stability, or left and right, or you know however we want to phrase it, then in that case, then um, there is this implicit idea that the more you divide power, then the better you are avoiding these outcomes. There, there's, and it, it's really in the way he defines left and right, and that's kind of just like a law of average thing where. It's better to uh, yeah. disperse it because you can you can afford a fuck ups dispersed across the entire country rather than concentrated on one on one seat. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of uh, like patchwork kind of um, where if you have a bunch of small monarchies that kind of tries to recreate that law of or you know averages thing without compromising the um, you know uh, faculty of good decision making, but it does. Um, you know, Moldbug's argument is that it essentially tends towards um, chaos and instability where everybody is, um, you know, everybody is power seeking, everybody is forced to be power seeking as a kind of moral obligation is that, you know, we have to, okay, well, if only everybody had power, then, you know, now we could get, you know, redistributed things to people or, you know, have these, uh, you know, it would somehow eliminate the rent seeking, essentially, that's the that's the goal of trying to distribute power better. And in, in practice, it doesn't. And that's where the, the negative arguments come in, essentially, and that you don't necessarily have to defend democracy, or sorry, you don't necessarily have to defend monarchy, you can just establish that, well, us spreading out this power doesn't necessarily solve this problem, is that you can still end up with a rent-seeking, tyrannical terror. I mean, I think the U.S. government's a, a pretty decent example of that. Um, or, I mean, you know, you, you can point to a lot of them, but just the fact that this has not been eliminated shows that, uh, you know, and you can see uh, there isn't necessarily a correlation there. I noticed that a few people wanted to chime in. Go ahead, Marlo. Got it very nearly on the nose there, but the big thing that uh, we're missing talking about the law of averages is that really what Moldbug is talking about is um, basically price discovery. He's trying to apply price discovery to political competence and the same way that the market prices a stock. And that's one reason he keeps talking about converting government obligations into shares or economic competition between um, physically secure patchworks. Um, he, has, um, he has a ton of faith in the ability of um, market incentives, price discovery, and so on to um, 
in the long run um, incentivize good governance uh, and um, discover the, the optimal set of policies for a given patch. So why isn't he an anarcho-capitalist? Well, I mean, one could say it sounds it sounds a lot like anarcho-capitalism with extra steps. Uh, it is that sort of in that sort of tradition of libertarians who have looked at um, libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism and thought, so uh, you know, okay, we're going to have to. We can't just make this work by embracing sort of democratic principles and rhetoric around freedom and so on. We have to have institutional safeguards built in to prevent um, the accumulation of power, the competition for red power, uh, and that which would uh, break an anarcho-capitalist uh, society if it was allowed to happen. Moldbug is just really, really uh, has really, really high a really high bar for what those safeguards need to be, how powerful they need to be. Well, if he has, if he has such faith in market efficiency or or using the market as a tool for price discovery then the argument would be inevitably if we have anarcho-capitalism the most successful institution or most successful way to structure society is going to be his preferred way of doing it yeah i I mean he he evolved from anarcho-capitalism into his position and uh he holds that oh yes this is the way to achieve what I want with anarcho-capitalism and what I was seeking with anarcho-capitalism. So they're very close neighbors, despite one being a monarchy with absolute power and one saying uh, we want complete anarchy. They are extremely close neighbors and deliberately so on his end. So, I mean, one way to describe anarcho-capitalism is the way it's portrayed in Snow Crash, or Patrick Friedman's vision of seasteading, of floating cities that are all run in different ways. The idea being is that you have this blank space for experimenting with different structures, but naturally some structures are really fucking stupid and they're not going to work, but you still allow that that space for it to, to kind of like work itself out. Uh, but over time, you're going to see kind of best practices on how to run a society uh, just by... I don't want to call it like uh, like evolution or natural selection, but you're, you're going to see some conversions uh, towards accepted standards. And I mean, the, the argument, at least on my end, as an anarcho-capitalist is, I don't know how to best run society. Uh, you guys figure it out. Here's here's like a blank uh, canvas. You, you do whatever the fuck you want. I'm going to leave you alone. If it works out, then naturally you're going to have more people migrating to your society because that you check off all the boxes that they are seeking, whether that's security, liberty, uh, freedom, whatever whatever they're looking for, they're going to examine the best buckets available and then choose your society. And that's as good of a metric as, as any in terms of what counts as a successful society. Uh, you could make that argument that, you know, I mean, this is true for pretty much any uh, utopian vision, uh, but if they agree with the mechanism of anarcho-capitalism or agree with the mechanism of uh, price discovery or the virtues of the free market as an experimental um, testing ground, then they should be confident to allow their preferred prescription for society to play out and they should win if, they, if they're correct. Kulak, you wanted to say something? or Yeah, I'd... I'd argue that essentially Moldbug is arguing for anarcho-capitalism. The big thing is, though, he's essentially trying to theorize and legitimate the the subset of 
of factions that he thinks would win and form governments in anarcho-capitalism. So, so he's like, yeah, anarcho-capitalism patchwork. Um, archipelago was Scott Alexander's term for it. Great, but realistically, these are the subsets that are probably going to win, or B are the ones that are going to be able to contend with with some form of democracy that's left over. So he would love anarcho-capitalism or patchwork. He thinks that's what we'll end up with. But his real project for now to get there is legitimating the first admiral he can get to, to turn rebel against the U S government and, and seize San Diego as his, his personal kingdom. Wait, why San Diego? Oh, that's just where the Navy's located. Presumably if it was Fort Bragg or, somewhere else it would be the army or the marine corps i don't i don't Has know he where advocated the... overthrowing the u.s government uh yes his he said that his dream is is um essentially 1989 like the soviet union moment happens and and the u.s government gets overthrown t- and tanks drive into washington dc and harvard yard Jasoni. i think what's interesting and we haven't actually harped on this yet is mold bugs like actual political proposals. And I think this kind of touches on at the very start, uh, there's kind of this aesthetic angle. And I think this is maybe more interesting, uh, at least to me personally, but it's, you know, if we're, we're talking about overthrowing the US government, but if you if you look at, if you actually read what he writes, right, he is completely nonviolent, right? I mean, in he loves, you know, harping on violence and saying that, you know, okay, everything depends on this absolute violence. But in actual practice, um, he is trying to convince people to exit the political process, not participate, not be a dissident, not you know give your opinions, don't vote, or if you do, you know vote for you know the correct party, which you know like vote Biden or something. And I, I think that's um, that whole idea of pacifism, and then how that um, you know contradicts essentially the ideas on the right. The other, I mean, the only other two viable options are accelerationism, which is where you get into Nick Land, who we also haven't talked about, or conventional right wing politics, which is just you know vote Trump. I guess um, there is, a, you know, he, he has this. I guess he thinks of it like as a, as a Buddhist idea or abandon your Western linear notion of power is something he said of like okay, instead of trying to just to overthrow the U.S. government, try doing this Zen judo move where you just kind of disengage and then hope that um, something legitimate and worthy comes along, and then you know they crown that king, you know, and then uh, or kind of like your uh, when you were talking about um, anarcho-capitalism, if you need something that you know will be chosen as the correct ruler or be you know okay, this idea seems better, so we will go with that. Um, and I, he's fleshed this out more in his later writings. In his earlier writings, it was very vague, but it was very much like, okay, we will establish some alternative to the U.S. government or really the university system that will seek truth, and then we'll wait a while, and then that will magically become in control of everything. It was never, uh, you know, go um, rile up all the people and start, you know, burning and uh, protesting and doing these different things. It's a completely different way of looking at politics, or I guess a rejection of it. Go ahead, Tracing. I yeah, I actually I really like that particular part of the vision. If there was one part of your action yeah. that I would highlight as a positive, it's that that That's idea my favorite part too. of the focus is. I mean, at one point he says kind of flippantly, the step to gaining power: one, become worthy; two, accept power; three, rule. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it's a very flippant message, but I think that message, if people take it seriously and they're like. Uh, people who are inclined to seek power or whatever, 
that's the message you want people who are inclined to seek power hearing is the first major step is not to be loud and uh, cause a commotion and uh, do uh, everything to like seize control of things. It's to become competent, do something well, do it extraordinarily well, present an alternative to something else that is currently failing, and then be ready to accept and scale up as people reject that failing alternative. Um, and I think that in particular is a very useful message. Marlo? I think um, that's worth drawing back to um, so looking at what Mobug's actually done, what Curtis Jarvin has done, um, which is uh, which was exactly when he was um, sort of finished with Mobug, he stopped writing and then he went and um, built what he believes to be an alternative to um, a broken system with, with Urbet. Um, I think what what we see, what I see in his uh, most recent writings, post Urbit, uh, like his writing on aesthetics and uh, the American mind, is that what he really is saying is um, it's not uh, pacifism is not just about um, not it's not just about waiting for your opponent to um, collapse in a, in a way that say um, a Marxist might uh, wait for the collapse of capitalism, but to start. Um, to exit the exit the process and where possible and and begin building alternatives on your own so that there is an obvious alternative and that is totally outside the the existing system of politics totally outside the progress totally outside the progressive zeitgeist uh, and uh, but which is able to for instance um, come in and um, replace the internet trace yeah yeah i was looking at her a bit a while back and it's just bizarre and insane and i think everyone who has seen it has that same reaction of this exists where it's built from the ground up its own uh coding language its own everything layer by layer by layer and then it's like yep so here we have this uh, potential alternative to the internet um and wait what is that what are you describing urbit uh mold bugs uh, the the company that curtis yarvin built is this ground-up, complete alternative to the internet that's supposed to be everyone gets their own personal server and you can connect with other servers arranged in this hierarchical system that draws inspiration from his political ideas. And it's a difficult thing to explain, a difficult thing to wrap your mind around, and everyone who looks at it can't decide whether it's performance art or something that could take over the world but it's it's fascinating and yeah i think that's one of the more interesting things to have come out of the reaction is him just sitting down and building this whole system from the ground up go ahead kulak um it's kind of like a bitcoin payment system that also will host websites and like webs web services ideally and yeah, you have to like learn the code yourself to tell whether it's like like oh, this is a concept of how we can live like occupy Wall Street type performance art or whether it's like Curtis Yarvin is the next Satoshi Nakamoto. I have a, I have a star. It's a, uh, Urban works Urban works pretty well for some basic stuff right now. It is still very very much not user friendly, so it's really a question of whether it's ever going to get um, past like those 
the techie hurdles that make um, you know some uh, very difficult to use compared to traditional websites. But at the same time, that's um, it is also kind of the point. He wants um, this sort of thing has to be. You can't just um, throw the doors open to everybody with these alternatives, with these alternative um, structures or institutions or spaces or whatever, because then they'll just become um, exactly the same as uh, the same as existing ones. So, what are some concrete steps that Moldbug would, or anyone within the neo reaction movement, would advocate for taking? Jasoni. Well, to harp on what Mar- uh, Marlow just said is um, fostering quality in um, dialogue and arch, and that if you were looking at kind of, I guess, the currently existing reactionary landscape, uh, or I I guess the right-wing landscape, it's kind of this um, disgusting mess of a very low-brow, you know, uh, you have a few Fox News pundits, you have Breitbart, you have, you know, a kind of few scattered publications of people who are, uh, you know, maybe kicked out of the universities. So they work for kind of these no name places that don't have any influence. And then, uh, then you have a bunch of Nazis on poll, right? And there's no, uh, on the left, you have, you know, Harvard, Yale. I mean, you, you have the whole kind of, uh, you have this whole complex of, um, the smartest people in the world who are sitting around thinking of how to, um, advance a certain political agenda and solve these problems and uh, advance an aesthetic agenda and that they you know they they're kind of the the tastemakers of what isn't isn't cool and the the big problem on the right is that it's just um i mean it's not cool and part of the reason why it's not cool is that it does not attract uh kind of um good enough figures uh that can produce quality work it can't um you know the i, I guess uh What's the term? Uh, the, I guess like on lit or something, they'd call you like a midwit if you're kind of in this IQ nether zone of, uh, you know, you're above average, but you're not quite somewhere. Uh, and you were on the right, you like hierarchy. Um, those people tend to fall into Nazism for whatever reason or some kind of white nationalism, identification with their race, etc. Um, and it's just, just this kind of trap of that there's no – better alternative for them there's no music for them to listen to there's no there's just nothing out there and so a concrete step in this case would be producing art that will um i I forgot his exact quote on it but essentially it will be an aesthetic so overpowering that uh it it brings down western civilization because it's just it's reduced it to you know this insignificant little thing that just wasn't cool enough you know and that's uh, that's where you start getting into kind of the, the the Bronze Age pervert territory, where you get in these kind of bad shit, crazy, um, you know, homoerotic kind of ridiculous deals. Of it. really, it's just kind of like a, a peacock dancing around, just trying to um, not attract really, but attract the the high quality people of of try to you know uh, you don't want the masses coming in and flooding it and ruining everything with their. Uh, you know, bad ideas about race or whatever. You want some like, you know, sophisticated people and that you could attract them somehow. So Moldbug, Yarvin, he reviewed uh, Brian Zade's Pervert in the American Mind, which is a publication of the Claremont Institute. So they're a very interesting group. They started out sort of very stuffy. I mean, the Claremont Review of Books is basically the right-wing equivalent to the New York Review of Books or something like that. But now the, with, the, with the American Mind, they've gone, um, they've suddenly taken that all extremely online and I think that is the kind of thing that um, Moldbug is talking about. It's too political for him, of course. So you have these right-wing institutions which are um, 
doing serious intellectual work, doing uh, uh, old school political philosophy and that sort of thing. But um, given considering like the state of the wider cultural landscape, um, an intelligent young right winger can easily end up in one of those um, and get um, enough of an or be exposed to right wing media online on uh, uh, 4chan or Twitter or whatever and get um, enough of a dissatisfaction with uh, progressivism, with the progressive cultural landscape and political system um, to reject it, to uh, see the flaws and hypocrisies or whatever. Um, but um, when they look around for an alternative and um, they don't see um, some they don't see something uh, compelling. They don't see something um, attractive to, so uh, they just go. They go with what they've got, which is um, poll, which is you know um, the white and uh, poll. Poll itself is a sort of um, uh, archetypal story of that because you had this um, anarchic community of uh, people who rejected um, the cultural status quo and fortune, and then. Um, when Paul was created, um, who were the people who went in there and um, created the created the culture of the board, created the political zeitgeist that's now um, all over 4chan? It wasn't um, it wasn't the sort of crazy new, uh, weird, interesting ideologies you would have expected to see coming out of somewhere like B. It was um, it wasn't uh, the strange esoteric philosophies you find on lit. It was. Um, a bunch of you know a bunch of Nazis from Stormfront who came in and and uh, put their ideology into this um, new empty creative space. Um, as a result, um, that's how you get uh, what Paul is nowadays, which is um, a very un- a very uncreative and uh, unpleasant space to be in. So to to give more background, Bronze Age Pervert is a Twitter persona who also has a book out and. I think he, uh, I don't know enough about him to opine, but uh, one of the things that, one of the projects that he wanted to partake in was he uh, he's identifies very strongly as a, as a bodybuilder. I don't, I don't think his identity is uh, public, but he wanted to have kind of a display of fellow bodybuilders on the National Mall in front of the United States Capitol. This was back in March as a way to, display, I guess, what a perfect male figure can look like. And that seems to be in line with the uh, Moldbug's ethos of, of having art that would bring down Western civilization. Is that right? Or at least that seems to be an attempt, Jasoni. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think Bronze Age pervert is, uh, he boils things down to biology uh, to a large part as he thinks that... Um, uh, I'm forgetting the exact way to word this, but um, he, he he essentially thinks that you know we we live in uh, uh, what, what's his term for? It? He calls it like yeast world. Is that right now? Is that the the naturally biologically stronger are being dominated by the lesser, and that the the space around us is is owned by this kind of um, uh, I guess you could call it bureaucracy or kind of the layers of uh, power has been so diluted that you know everybody's got a piece of the pie and so at that point that you know nothing really controls anything except for um i I guess moloch for lack of a better word is that you know you walk around somewhere and it's you know you might have you might say well this is my property or that you know this is this or that but you're you're limited to these very um you know pre-carved out sections all these restrictions on them you can't act the way that um 
you're essentially programmed to. And so he's trying to, um, I, I guess, kind of free up space in in um in the ideological realm by um i i guess i mean this isn't the only thing he's doing but it, it's kind of you know we're wheelist we currently inhabit this very modern deal of um you know we, we have a very narrow set of ideas in terms of you know progressivism conservatism or maybe there's a few ideolo- ideologies outside of that and by going back to the bronze age something he's doing is um uh you know i i, I don't even know i mean i guess he is not like he isn't completely ironic in advocating for that stuff, but in showing kind of the aesthetic of how they lived and what they actually thought, you can sort of, uh, I guess it's like a deconstruction almost. It's like, you know, you can go back through history and, you know, you could read old books, like you can read Plato or something, but the only context you're going to get Plato right now is, uh, you know, in a university class. If you're, you know, if you just read on your own, you're not really going to understand it. And in those classes, they're reading it through the terms of um, what we already understand and that we have our own values. We're, you know, very, um, we would be morally repulsed by, you know, the Athens of old or, you know, especially Sparta or, you know, Homer before that. And so he goes back and he essentially, he reads these things through the lens of that Bronze Age morality or I guess his ideal of it. And through that, you kind of get this, um, expansion of what is possible in the Overton realm and the kind of aesthetic window of what is permissible is that he has carved out space that the rest of you can now um, kind of fill in by kind of uh, – and he does a lot of this through uh, – I guess it's like a performance in that he's uh, this like very erudite Alex Jones type figure and he's kind of parading around his mastery of these things while making all these jokes and uh, you know the talking – I guess really showing, I guess the bodybuilding image is kind of a, you know, I am a superior specimen. I am this, I am, you know, it's uh and he's unapologetic about it. Well, so to go back to your comment about art or at least like Moldblig's comment about art, to me, it strikes me as a self own because he's saying that one way to get to his ideal society is to have the right wing be, I guess, less boorish and more, uh, embodying the noble aesthetics of classical literature, classical architecture, but that's not happening. So why? And how do you even like fix that? Because it's not something that you can just snap your fingers and say, okay, everyone, can you please make great art? But it has to be art so great that it brings down society. Kulak, go ahead. I've often been confused by a lot of his proposals in this respect. Like i Sometimes I think that a lot of the aesthetic commitments are st- weird, stressing jokes. Bap is, if you listen to his podcast, he's he's funny. He'll have classical illusions and like Alex Jones level conspiracy theories in a review of like a Mickey Minaj um, music video or stuff like that. <laughs> like weird, like he'll do stuff like that to like weird pop culture takes. Like essentially a big strain of it is just trying to create a vision of the right that isn't conservative or like has stripped stripped off the conservative aesthetics since essentially they can't drive new culture or to the extent they can it's going to be be like country country western something that just can't can't draw in the types of types of people who would drive a new culture and usher in the new world um, I, I've often been confused by it. I don't abs- ascribe to this part of Neo Reaction. Essentially, 
I want the the tanks rolling into Washington. I've my big project is kind of trying to create that neo Visigoth um, Nietzschean Leninist. Um, the chaos gods don't exist, so they must be created. Kind of ideology that could that could theoretically enact it. Um, free free Felix Guzman and Al Chapo and and install them as kings of the wasteland kind of ideology, like something that out there and crazy, but then I'm the one that's planning to disappear on a motorcycle and work out for months on it. And so uh, I'm... So in indeed, I'm fo- following the niche, the mold-buggying um, prescription. Uh, to, uh, I, I don't want this question to sound dumb, but I, I guess, like, what is the point of that like without the like are are you just saying that that would be an ideal outcome from a kind of like a utilitarian perspective of that that would solve everybody's problems or the you know that would eliminate kind of the issues because i i think going down the aesthetic angle i guess it it, it touches on a, a deeper issue of um i i guess i don't want to say freedom that's kind of trite but it, it's uh you know what? What is the what, what is the point to life, or how should it be lived, or you know what is going on? And I, I guess you know Bap's answer is, uh, which I guess isn't really that different from Nietzsche's, but it, you know he talks about this uh, this concept of space, of you know taking space. His ideal for his aesthetic ideal, it's like the highest a man could be as a pirate. And you know he talks about you know just these old Caribbean pirates going around raping and looting and pillaging, and they just take what they want. And then he's saying that that is good for its own end, which um, you know I, I think is abhorrent, but it, it it does function as a kind of cleansing fire to the old you know moralism. But it, it does need a. I, I do think that you you need a, an artistic terminal goal, or you need some kind of thing of. Um, some ritual that you're acting out in order to give meaning to this entire process. If you were just trying to uh, enact a, a utilitarian concern, you're just trying to make the world a better place. Um, then I think probably like antinatalism or something is the way to go. Or you know, it, it doesn't like it, you know at the the world where we enter BAP, we're kind of we we start adopting these certain virtues of like you know manliness or you know whatever the hell it is. That's this kind of you know this bronze age deal and that without that you're you're just kind of um you would need some kind of aesthetic to replace it that doesn't have a utilitarian goal well this is kind of the problem um they're all still essentially all of near reaction is still libertarians at heart like they're still trying yeah. to find a way to get to anarcho-capitalism so <laughs> <laughs> so whether it's it's Build your art, build your, build your company. You know, go galt and become this per- perfect being, and then you know when it gets bad enough and the Soviet Union collapses, you can roll back in and be. Well, what? Like it's not as it. It's not as if the White Russians returned and and you know some great entrepreneur of Russian descent all suddenly took over Russia and turned it into into the ending of Atlas Shrugged or turned it into some great golden age monarchy. It, it fell to the gangsters. So my prescription is let's create an ideology for the gangsters. What would that look like? We can see in, in the cartel tells in Mexico that they, they have the organizational structure, the funding and the welding skills to create, 
to create convoys of technicals on par with ISIS. So we just need to give them the ideology that would legitimate them, I don't know, overthrowing the Mexican government and installing themselves as the the monarchs and lords of the new new world. And then we've won. There's an army. There's an army waiting there to just inject your ideology in and say, "Hey guys, hey guys, you you can." You can give yourselves noble titles and call yourselves the Dukes of Bala or or Sinaloa. So who do you envision being convinced by your plan of let's give the cartels more power? Uh, well, the most important people in that equation is the cartels, and I think they'd much like that proposition. Well, yeah, that's, that's not in question. So maybe this gets us to why should they be in power? What are the benefits of that? So the big benefit is that they're quite possibly the only institution with governing power in the Western hem- Hemisphere, at least, that mimics the ownership st- structure of of monarchies. And you can s- see this with how effectively they're governed, despite being, you know, having their star employees picked off and arrest- arrested instead of having, in spite of having incredible bribes and intimidation put put on them to to essentially turn Benedict. Dick Arnold, in in spite of having the largest military force and policing force in the world, using often illegal spying technology to try and pull one over on them, they're still able to contend with them in what is the longest war in U.S. history, and they've gotten rich doing so, which I, I don't think any of the Viet Cong got rich, rich fighting the Vietnam War, maybe a few of them. So, I mean, you've, you've clearly established their fortitude and, and endurance and stamina, but why should they be in power besides that? Because what I see is a trail of bodies left behind by their constant quibbling between each other. So, the, essentially, the story of the cartels is Felix Guzman established, essentially, it was described as OPEC for, for, gank, for drug lords, the the original Mexican cartel, which was probably the most peaceful time in the entire history of the drug war for about five-ish, five-ish years. There were almost no bodies in the entire drug when war. When was this? War. This was the 90s. When is Narcos Me- Mexico set? Um, immediately following the... Um, Are you citing a Netflix TV series? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the most most popular um, telling of the tale. But essentially, <laughs> essentially, there were no left to their own devices. They created governing institutions that protected their property rights, maintained peace, and established a person to regulate relations between them. Um, Felix, for some incredible incredible reason, was amazingly tr- trusted by all the. Lords of Mexico, and essentially upon his arrest, his the removal of the rightful king, they had to divide because their governing structure was too hierarchical. It couldn't withstand constant spy networks being set up by the DEA up and down it. So they had to split up. And what happens when you split split a hierarchical what's a natural hierarchical structure into to different fiefdoms or or bizarre alliances that don't follow the natural hierarchy while well, they start start competing and start warring with each other. That's what happened. You can see this replicated throughout the drug war. Um, so you're, you're saying when it was all run by one person, things were fine. But as soon as that person was arrested, then it 
it devolved into co-op, it devolved into localized civil war. Uh, yes, it wasn't just that he was arrested. Presumably, they could have dealt with a succession. It's that their governing structure didn't could not withstand people their leadership being constantly arrested. So essentially, if the king knows where all the bodies buried and the king gets arrested, there are problems. Even if he doesn't turn state's witness, you know, the next guy down from him who gets arrested might, or or this might happen, or the, this might happen. There's massive information leaks. So they had to essentially switch over to an insurgent structure of of different cells or divided car- cartels. So this seems to be, to me, it just seems to assume the problems away. So it's like as long as we have a replicated structure like the cartels and as long as nothing happens to the leader and as long as we have a robust succession, then things will be fine. But that's the problem. Like, how do you even establish those? Well, I could say that about any governing structure. How How do you keep your kingdom functioning well when the U.S. is invading your kingdom? But uh, this is the same trap the tracing was talking about earlier. But um, you can see this as well in Pablo Escobar's rule. Essentially, he had his had his fiefdom established and was turning it quite peaceful, keeping everything very quiet while he ran for. I think he was running for the Senate of Colombia, and then U.S. intervention prevented. I'm not saying that that near reaction creates creates governing structures so strong that a third world company, the country that adopts it, could immediately resist the force of U.S. invasion. But the broad structure is, a, is, a, is pretty ideal, very much replicates some of the most successful structures in history in terms of achieving power and maintaining it peacefully. And we can see that replicated in the cartel structure because they fall in owner stru- structure broadly because most of the car- cartel bosses starting in the 80s became obsessed with um, 80s business books. Um, the head of the Cali cartel was famously a massive fan of Jack Welch's from the gut tale of how he reformed GE. And that's a tradition that continued th- throughout them, trying to govern exactly like corporate structure and often cases using large corporations as part of their structures. So are you heralding the cartels as as an example because not only do they embody um, business savvy and business acumen, but also the violence necessary to establish a pseudo-state? Um, yes, on both points. Um, I'd argue the, viol- the violence that we think of as associated with the cartels is largely entailed by them having already established pseudo-states and then those pseudo-states being invaded. Um, They had achieved broadly their governing structure that we see today around the early 80s or the 90s in the case of Mexico, that at that point there were essentially governments unto themselves that were governed quite profitably and effectively. No one in the cartel territory as far as I know, the cartels didn't establish anything comparable to even a 10% income tax over the territories they controlled. So the other, the other comparison, and Tracing, I, I'll, I'll let you say something soon, but the other comparison that comes to mind is ISIS. Do you herald them as an example of uh, a paragon of near action? No, because ISIS is fundamentally a democratic organization that works <laughs> off of the... <laughs> 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 All right, I... I 
I think you know why I'm laughing because <laughs> ISIS derives its legitimacy from from the the faith of its adherents. So essentially, essentially is, the leader. How is that disqualifying? I'm telling you, no true communism. So essentially, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi doesn't have property owner ownership of ISIS, or didn't before he was drone stuck. So ISIS, essentially, if Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, say, converted religions or, say, decided, you know what, this caliphate thing, no, we're just going to govern the territory we have, or decided, you know what, I really don't care about prostitution, they're paying taxes. He can never say that. His legitimacy is directly true. I don't know if this is going to be like a rabbit hole that we're going into, but you can you can make an argument for maintaining like the prohibition of prostitution insofar as it uh, helps you coalesce this uh, national ethos that people have are already uh, adhering to religiously. And, you know, pun, in, I don't know if that counts as a pun, but you have like this uh, institution of a religion that has a very zealous uh, adherence. And so the, it, it makes sense to kind of merge that with your governing structure and you know medieval muslim empires have done this successfully for hu- literally hundreds of years so i don't see that as a disqualifier when you say well he's not maximizing profit you can still say he's maximizing profit but maximizing profit means paying taxes or having a bureaucracy or having an hr department that costs money but provides ancillary benefits in other ways so in this way like prohibiting prostitution provides some sort of institutional uh, benefit that doesn't provide direct uh, payment immediately, but helps uh, maintain the structure. That would logically make sense. So I'd argue that that's kind of the trap that the House of Saud falls falls into. One of their main problems is they have this incredibly religious population who essentially they have to appease and who effectively demand a high level of intervention in their life lives by the state if you demand the state regulate morality laws or ban ban usury or or of course keep prostitution and even alcohol alcohol out of the country the the thing about isis is it was specifically an ideology of coalescing the most fanatic religious fanatics around abu bakr al baghdadi and then seizing territories and imposing that that governing structure on the populace. So you had fairly secular for the region parts of Iraq that were being conquered by ISIS and then having the religious structure imposed. And the end goal of the leadership and the entire structure was that imposition. So even with a population that, say, say would be vastly more pro- profitable if you just let them do their own thing, or if they captured, let's say ISIS captured Las Vegas. If the cartels cop- captured Las Vegas, they wouldn't change a thing about Las Vegas. They'd say, okay, you're paying paying a cut to us instead of the state of Nevada. Okay, we're going to keep in- administering this. Okay, and oh, these problems that you have because busybodies would complain if you dealt with it. No, we're just going to deal with it. We're going to chase the buck the bums out or to try and maximize profit. ISIS takes over Las Vegas. The first thing they would do is kill the golden goose because gambling, prostitution, all that. 
violates the religion. So it's an ideology that instead of being able to administer assets was tearing it down in the pursuit of essentially the democratic goal of being able to impose their their ideals upon others based on what the broad collective of the movement thought should be imposed. Okay. So cool. Like you've, you've had a, a lot of opportunity to talk and I'm mindful to let other people chime in as well. Uh, one of the things that came to mind is why does it need to be money or economic success? Why does that need to be the lodestar by which we measure the success of uh, society? And this gets into what is the benefit? What is the argument in favor of a, of a reactionary society? Go ahead, Marlo. This brings up some interesting changes, maybe changes in Mollebog's thought. I think he met in between unqualified reservations and his most recent writings, and he's absorbed some of the criticisms that um, maybe you could call them uh, traditionalists uh, or neo-paleocons or whatever have been making about um, the corrosive, the potentially corrosive effects uh, of um, profit maximization uh, of um, modern techno-capitalism on social institutions and the inherent churn which comes from that. Um, in his recent uh, in his recent talks uh, about uh, maximizing, uh, ruling for the health of the people, trying to maximize social health uh, over, rather than maximize, um, say, GDP. Uh, I think uh, in this... In unqualified reservations, when he's talking about patchwork neocameralism, giving people shares in their government to trade and judging the government by the value of, by essentially its market cap, um, that's an attempt to uh, get uh, the get the, C- the CEO, the king, whatever, to take a holistic picture of the long-term health of the community to um, keep it uh, to keep it uh, as profitable as possible throughout its entire. Uh, Lifetime through into the uh, into the future, and which is done by make, keeping keeping a healthy community, keeping uh, clean streets, political harmony, that sort of thing. And I don't think it's something he really cared to uh, work out the details of too much. Uh, I, whatever sort of um, markets uh, whose price discovery could assess the value of, of um, a government could assess the value of a patch um, would probably have to be a little more complicated. Uh, one reason he. You know, he, he disputes Robert Hansen, I believe, a fair bit about uh, futarchy and unqualified reservations about the utility of um, predictions markets. And uh, I think in that, in those, some of those arguments end up being kind of a cell phone in that uh, simply trading simply trading a country's shares on um, a free market is not going to... Um, we're going to need a hell of a market. We're going to need a kind of market. So um, I think you're definitely making a, a good point there. So what would that market... I mean, is there a way to synthesize it that doesn't become selective? Um, And what I mean by this is, you know, there's the massive planet-sized nutshell written by Scott Alexander about reactionary, and then there's the anti-reactionary FAQ, which is like 32,000 words. Uh, But it goes into a great deal of detail in terms of how some of the metrics are heralded as as proof that reactionary philosophy is successful, however you want to define it, it doesn't seem to hold up when you when you scrutinize it further. So, for example, you can talk about uh, suicide, you can talk about homicide, you can talk about wealth, debt, 
whatever metric that you want to pull from, what what exactly is the underlying or unifying philosophy for what which metrics are important and which ones get ignored? Because like from from my standpoint, there's there's some metrics that I wouldn't care about. Like it it's not an indication of yeah, to use their favorite word, degeneracy. So for example, if I if I see that divorce is increasing, that could mean either that people are finally able free are free to exit abusive relationships or it could mean the utter breakdown of previously favorable family stability. It's not it's not clear exactly which way it cuts. So if we were to collect metrics to measure the benefits why people should be convinced of the merits of a reactionary society or country or whatever you want to call it, which metrics would we look at? Because to give, to give an example, I, I mean, my own philosophy, anarcho-capitalism, I, I laid out my metric. And my metric is you have this patchwork archipelago and whichever one has the most amount of people wins. Because that, to me, is like the easiest way to synthesize the myriad of concerns that any person would have about what they want to see in a society or how a society is governed. Okay, go ahead, Trace. So just wondering, because you've mentioned Patrick, are you aware that that was originally Moldbug's idea that he put forth? No, uh, this is the first time I heard about it. Yeah, Uh, so that uh, idea of whichever has the most people wins patchwork type thing that's basically what moldbug would say okay so we are in agreement in terms of the mechanism of ascertaining which societies work out best he just believes that it's gonna have but but he's not he's not agnostic he's not saying oh i wonder what's gonna win he has a specific uh prescription for society and those prescriptions has have to be based on specific uh, merits that he's identifying right because on my end, I am agnostic. I don't know. I have like a, a preliminary preference for libertarian policy society, but I also acknowledge that, hey, I could be wrong. We It could just turn into a complete shithole that no one wants to live in. So I, I am agnostic in that sense, but he's not. And I'm curious to know what exactly does he look for to determine success? Profitability. Marlo. Yeah, so... I think uh, you're you're probably a bit closer to Moldbug than uh, it's coming across here, because um, well, Moldbug is Moldbug's uh, belief that uh, you can assess the value of a patch um, is pretty similar to yours, except people don't actually need to live in the patch; they just need to buy its shares. So, uh, which which makes sense, because of course you can't have um, eight billion people or whatever move into your floating city state. It, it you know it would sink. <laughs> But uh, so that that's one point there. But also, I don't. I think I would push back on your claim that uh, Moldbug is not agnostic in the way you are. I think uh, Moldbug certainly he seems to think neocameralism is a is this uh, you know comp- a, st- a state organized like a company and is a good way to run things. But um, he is also. It does play pretty fast and loose with the details, stuff like relying on cryptographic weapons locks and, and that to uh, function. So, so, but um, although he thinks that, although he predicts that uh, this society would be successful and effective, um, I don't think it's necessary for patchwork or for his wider narrative to be um, 
for that to be the particular model reactionary society ends up taking once we've um, gone through the process of building it. It's more, it's more like those sort of the political theoretic equivalent of the artworks he talks about when he's talking about Bronze Age pervert. It's, um, uh, it's a prototype to say, look, um, we can think outside of the progressive box. We can uh, come up with something new and different. Um, and I think uh, he would want to see um, many, many different alternatives to neocameralism and a patchwork, and some of them may turn out to be um, much more effective or successful. Great, Jasoni, go ahead. Yeah, if I could, um, I would call his agnosticism a radical agnosticism, especially with um, his uh, stuff on the clear pill he's been writing lately, which is mostly, you know, it's more of a formalization of his ideas about pacifism before that. But, uh, and not to put words in your mouth again, but I mean, there's kind of this implicit ideal that you have to pick a side, or uh, I guess deeper than that is that you have to have some idea of, you know, okay, this is how I want things to be, to be, and you know, to be to be agnostic. Even in your case, you're saying that okay, well, I'm going to default to you know, kind of this empirical method, right? You know, I'm saying, well, um, you know, I have this method that will pick the best thing, and then we'll, we'll go with that. And I think in questioning the the very idea of politics itself is your you you don't even have to have an opinion about government anymore is that you don't have to uh, you know not that you don't have to care i mean but you know in um you can kind of abandon the notion of having an ideology or abandon the notion of um you know cuz uh, i mean mostly it comes down to a larp i mean like just you know all of us talking here i mean i'm not sure if any of you are very you know rich or influential or something but even if you were i mean you're not going to enact this vision substantially you can only do you know very minor things to move towards it and there's this expectation there's this social expectation that we should all have a dog in the fight and i I think in moldbug's you know deal of and maybe this is a shield for him you know but it allows him to be very vague and talk about how well you know this is for people a hundred years from now or however long it's going to take and that you know he's not really uh, you know, I, I guess his ideas on you know neocameralism or formalism, whatever you want to call it, it's I, I don't even know that he's married to it necessarily. He's more married to his overall meta narrative and his definitions and his semantics, but he doesn't necessarily have a solid prescription besides stop participating in this process. The the, the carving out right the the Bronze Age perfect. I mean, the Alex Jones conspiracy theories, for example, or the homoerotic bodybuilder stuff. It does not serve as a advocacy for those things so much as it's a, um, you know, it, it, it's so absurd that you're forced out into this other, this new territory where, you know, new possibilities can be cultivated. And within that space, that is where the specifics will arise. That is where some people smarter than us in the, um, I, I guess, what is it? Moldbug calls it the antiversary, you know, whatever, how, however that is built, or maybe this is part of it, but it's, uh, you know, there will be some process that is married to truth that will eventually find that out. But you don't necessarily have a stake in that, or you don't have to. You're just uh, laying the conditions for that to happen. So the anti-reactionary FAQ was from 2013, and there is a note at the top that as of 2014, Scott Alexander has had a change of heart, at least on some facets of it. Reading through it is is perhaps unfair because I haven't read a ton of Moldbug, 
and so I'm getting basically a rebuttal to something that I haven't read. Uh, but the, the, re- the points that are being refuted seem almost embarrassing. And I'm wondering if Moldbug has, or anyone within the new reactionary flagship has moved away from them. So to point out some examples, uh, talking about how the homicide rate has largely been flat or declining, how the suicide rate has largely been declining, how wealth has been tremendously increasing, health has been tremendously increasing, all of this under the auspices of the so-called progressive regime. So there's all these metrics that you can point to that are getting better, but supposedly like it's, we're not, it's not, or I'm not even sure like what the, what the real argument is. There's, there's points of degeneracy that, you know, that are pointed out, but I, I, I can't tell how serious they are. And they usually run the gamut of, we have drag queens giving reading hour at the library, which is okay. Like, what is it concrete? What does it actually do? Is it just like a flash in the pan culture war issue that people are going to be angry about? Or is there something much more uh, deep seated that is that it's revealing? So I'm trying to, the reason I wanted to talk about metrics is I'm trying to discern exactly what to look for. How do we know we're going in the right direction besides just looking at profitability? And even if we are looking at profitability, then we have, you know, the United States, Switzerland, New Zealand, Luxembourg, Hong Kong is like one of the highest per capita GDP nations. Is that good enough? Go ahead, Kulak. So to just take your point on the metrics, um, I'd agree that those talking points, I'm not sure if that was Moldbug specifically making those talking points back in like... So it was uh, Moldbug, but also Michael Anisimov of More Right Blog. Okay. I... I would say that Amisimov was objectively just wrong in 2014, but th- of course the rebuttal is looking out at the news today and saying, "Well, not anymore." But um, the bigger, the bigger one would be just which institutions tend in which direction. So the Moldbugger, a traditional right winger, would argue that the most progressive cities are the ones with the most crime so you could point to chicago or or detroit if you really want to pick on it but the big thing about the metrics is he would argue that you can use gdp probably as the core metric in a scenario where there's there's extensive and viable exit rights so um within the context of municipalities when the patches are are that small, the GDP of a municipality is pretty much directly tied to the effectiveness of its governance because it is that easy to just up and leave if things start going going south very quickly or if things just aren't govern, governed well. And that doesn't get into the details of like, oh, is this a place that's causing divorce or is this a place that's causing misery? But the exit rights effectively translate translate all those minute factors of of oh i'm a i'm of a small religion is this place catering to my needs it converts that into a gdp figure because as soon as a person's miserable in a place they aren't going to be spending money in that place um so i'd like to chime in here i think um partly because i think this gets us to 
Moldbug's fundamental definition of what a reactionary is and where I disagree with him fundamentally. Um, so Moldbug doesn't uh, deny the um, fact, the facts of objective progress in a lot of ways, like, uh, for instance, healthcare technology, even though um, we're a fat, even though we're fatter and more century, uh, et cetera, than we used to be, we live longer because our technology has improved. And, and in fact, he doesn't even make the sort of argument that, uh, say, Nassim Taleb makes in reply to Stephen Pinker, or that um, you know, uh, Bertrand de Juvenal, Moldbug's sort of uh, progenitor, would have made, which is that um, we sure we uh, we've done better, but does it, but does that really uh, excuse the horrors of say the 20th century, or um, that it could ha- that it could happen again as long as we don't, um, as long as um, we have the power to do it? But Moldbug's uh, argument is that um, we are capable of separating social and technological change. That um, he uses the he uses a sort of little makeshift equation, which is that if we consider technological change to be A and uh, social change to be B, the question is whether the the difference between a reactionary and a non-reactionary is that a reactionary believes that A plus B um, is less than A. You know, we are underperforming our technological achievement um, due to um, failed governance structures, due to uh, parasitic institutions and that sort of thing. And I, well, where I disagree there is that I don't, I don't think those two are really separable. I mean, there's a, there's a real reason that uh, Moldbug's hated Protestants um, are the ones who came up with Weber's um, Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. I think that's a real question that Moldbug has to answer, which is the relationship between technological uh, economic development and so on, and um, these uh, and these uh, political social institutions he dislikes. Uh, but uh, it's just it's just his belief that they can be separated, and uh, the only way to test that is uh, with a patchwork. <laughs> Tracing, go ahead. Yeah, this ties into a point I've actually been wanting to make for a while, um, particularly when. Uh, Yassine was talking earlier about the idea of basically giving a bunch of different things a try and seeing what's functional, seeing what works. And then when Kulak was talking about uh, looking around and saying, well, you can't know what works uh, when someone more powerful than you, the United States, keeps coming in and uh, destroying uh, whatever you've got going, which is that I think... um, if someone is looking at the world in a lot of those terms like that and looking at the world in terms of, you know, what leads to progress, what leads to uh, growth, what has been demonstrated to uh, outcompete other things, I think you're going to have a very difficult case for anything other than liberal democracy having outcompeted pretty much everything else and having created something that uh, is stable enough and effective enough that it has at least up to this point where we are and that could change but right now in the world we're looking at liberal democracy has become the mightiest by Kulak's standard of you know might makes right and have this glorious gang lead something effectively or whatever i mean the u.s has done that in terms of you see the standard of outcompeting everything else Again, um, the U.S. has done that. It just, I hear all of these, and they really sound to me like, okay, let's take 20 steps backwards and hope that when we step forward again, we end up stepping forward into something better than this organic, 
tricky whatever process of history has led to where we are has already produced. It's basically like, let's strip all this structure away and hope a new, better structure pops in to fill the gaps. And I find that really unconvincing, ultimately. Yeah, I'm having trouble kind of jumping on board because I haven't been able to identify a compelling argument for why we should jettison the current world order. And I say this as someone with plenty of grievances against it. So, but but I still can, I have to acknowledge that it, it works really well on a variety of, of metrics that I'm very reluctant to just say, well, maybe if we erase everything, we'll build something better when that hasn't been like demonstrated. What specifically do you mean by erase everything? Because there's not a political prescription here where like, like nobody's waving a magic wand, like just the, the history just sort of unfolds, right? Things just happen. There isn't a, you know, reactionaries aren't saying, I mean, maybe Kulak is saying that. Kulak's but there saying isn't that. A, <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, okay, if we could uh, untangle that from what Moldbug is saying, or I guess the, you know, because th- there are different prescriptions here on the right. I mean, there, there's several of them. And what Moldbug says is very different from what uh, Nick Land is advocating for. And they would all, you know, the, this mechanism of erasing everything. It's, well, does that mean waiting around till something better comes along? Does that mean, um, you know, going into what's going, uh, like accelerating what's going on now even further than hoping it collapses? I mean, like what specifically do we have issues with? When we, the, I think when Kulak was describing kind of these valiant attempts that get stomped on by the might of the United States empire. And it reminds me of, I don't know who described it this way, but the yarn about how, when humanity shifted away from hunter gatherer tribes to towards agricultural civilizations, you were able to accomplish a lot more based because of spatialization. You would have this uh, educated elite class that could survive because they didn't have to farm. And you did this because there were trade-offs involved. So you can make an argument that hunter-gatherer tribes had a lot of leisure. They were very healthy. They had a very well-balanced diet. And I'm not trying to make this, um, what's the, what's the philosophy that says, let's all go back to primitive living. Um, Anarcho-primitive. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to make an anarcho-primitivism argument. I'm just acknowledging that there is, that there was a trade-off because once you shift away from, foraging and hunting and sustaining yourself into based on primarily on grains uh you you lose your teeth because the way they ground the grains meant that there were pieces of rocks inside the bread uh you didn't have as much protein so like people were generally weaker but you could feed a hundred more people so you a hundred very weak malnourished teat rotting people can easily defeat a band of uh 20 or 30 like buff natural bodybuilders. And so you had those societies kind of get stamped out because they couldn't sustain themselves with the, with this kind of alternative as, as a competition. And all I'm doing is acknowledging that there was some trade off inherent in that. It doesn't mean that I want to go back to it. Uh, But this, this also highlights why metric is important because if, if you can't survive within this new paradigm of, some civilizations are going to be agricultural based. You're going to be based on hunter hunting and gathering. If you can't survive, then that kind of tells you 
that there's a problem. You can't just like assume it away. And that's what I kept thinking about, about when we talk about how, well, these societies would be fine if they didn't just get stomped on by, by the might of the United States apparatus. Well, that's a problem that you need to address. How do you protect yourself from that? Go ahead, Grid Jasoni. Oh, you've essentially re-derived Bronze Age Pervert's entire philosophy just from the opposite direction in that um, he thinks that there's this natural process that, you know, over over the course of the development of civilization, kind of it tends towards this domination of the, uh, you know, the society that has the larger population will outcompete the one in the smaller population. And so we we maximize, uh, you know, number of people and we minimize kind of the, the quality of the people. And what, you know, I, I don't even know he's, I mean, his only specific political thing as far as I can tell is, you know, go vote for Trump. And, you know, he's he's got a few other things, but he's not really a political theorist per se. But there is this notion that the metric should not be population in his in his sense. It should be this kind of uh, intangible kind of, uh, I guess, quality of glory or great men or something along those lines. And, you know, Moldbug even, he's, he's shifted. I don't really know. I, I have trouble keeping track of his old views and his new views. But I know I heard a recent talk. He was uh, citing a work uh, by Carlyle, um, which is like on chartism or something along those lines. But it's essentially, um, you know, in the, the early days of um, when um, government through statistics was really being kind of pioneered or that was really when it was, you know, taking off and um, I, I guess what is that like the mid nineteenth century something like that? Well, uh, there, there, there's a kind of there was this failed revolution that happened, and you know Carlyle's kind of writing about the aftermath of it. But you know one of the things he talks about is kind of the um, how terrible statistics are as a metric, and really kind of you know metrics in general is this kind of um, you know it's there is the. I guess there is that intangible aspect, which and it, it pisses off. I guess people who are very rationalist, or um, you know, I, I guess there's a kind of like post-rationality argument, but it just really isn't. Um, the whole idea of metrics to measure these things, it, it will always, it, it almost always terminates in the wrong um, incentive structures. That you are you are seeding the world to one incarnation of Moloch or the other by picking a certain metric, right? I mean, by picking, you know, profit has its own obvious issues, but, you know, population size, for example, then you start running in this kind of Malthusian thing, but even then that's sort of unpleasant to live in. Or, I mean, just, you know, you can go on these various things is that, you know, trying to, once you have outsourced governing to, okay, well, we must all orient ourselves to this one number. Well, now you're, you're married to it. That becomes your sovereign to a certain extent. It's kind of like uh, how ISIS is, you know, well, you have to follow, um, you know, whatever strain of Islam it is. And if you contradict it, then, um, you know, al-Baghdadi doesn't have the power to override that. You know, in the same cases, if you were married to certain metrics and you're saying, okay, I must maximize this, well, all of a sudden you have you have ceded your absolute sovereignty to a certain extent. All right, let's, uh, let's go towards concluding thoughts. Anything that we haven't touched upon? Marlo? I guess uh, one thing I'd like to bring up uh, is that it's just the neo reaction in general, its existence as a movement as opposed to just Moldbug's writings and speech and speech uh, writings and speeches. Uh, we don't see a lot of these new movements appear, these new inter- intellectual schools of thought or whatever you want to call it. Um, they pop up um, every so often on the left. I get the last one I would say for the right before neo reaction was anarcho capitalism and the of free market thought in the, 20th, in the late 20th century. 
And the fact that the, just the fact that this has happened is very is interesting. It speaks, I think, um, maybe to the power of the internet, but also um, provides a lesson for people who are looking to create their own similar intellectual movement, sort of be part of a new one. And part of it, I think, is that um, they, there were a lot of uh, there are a lot of blogs uh, that sort of lit up around neo reaction um, that had. You know, that had different focuses. Most of them were more sort of culture war than Moldbug. And there was one called The Future Primeval that was really good for stuff like talking about the value of small group leadership and um, the particular skills that a reactionary would want. Um, but then that's just um, disappeared in 2016, basically. It was, it was fading by then, but everything was just totally blown out of the water by uh, Trump and the election and uh, the online energy and the culture wars around that. And, uh, survived has come in a weirder form, in a more esoteric, um, artistic, uh, occulted, maybe um, maybe at times secretive um, networks and uh, figures like Bronze Age pervert. Uh, but and uh, I don't think it's a coincidence, sadly, that uh, those figures tend to be on Twitter, whereas the defunct reactor sphere was mostly around blogs. It seems like the Reaction, if reactionaries are serious about allowing new, right, new reactionary ideologies and images and so on to flourish, they're going to have to do better than social media, which is which is not going to be easy. Uh, maybe Herbert will save us, who knows? But um, and I think it's my concluding thoughts that it's very interesting to see a movement like this, which is coming out, providing something, not just a, a new solution, but a whole new narrative, which is asking the questions of political philosophy and political science in a different way. And the very fact that your reaction happened, maybe it's over, with, or that it's that it came about, uh, is something that we should is something that's heartening in itself for people who are interested in. Um, new ideas, new ways of thinking, new worldviews, new intellectual movements. I feel concerned that I'm opening a can of worms, but we didn't really get into the association between neo-reactionary and, and alt-right or even Trump because those connections seem tenuous. Go ahead, Tracing. I actually uh, was about to raise sort of that, that to a degree, which is that um, one of the things that Great Jasoni was bringing up was this point that a lot of it is about trying to create a higher aesthetic. And I don't remember whether it was Great Jasoni or Marlowe pointing out the difference between it and something like Slash Paul. Um, I think this is also one of the ways in which near action has ultimately, at least from my view, failed and what future movements would do, uh, do well to notice and improve on is you go to say... Obviously, this isn't the home of neo-reaction, but it's a useful place. R slash Dark Enlightenment um, is a hub of it. And you like search through the top things of it, and it starts looking like this more erudite slash Paul, basically, where it's uh, a lot of the same alt-right meme set, a lot of the same... Uh, I mean, I'll read like the second most popular post title from the last year, and just like that, joggers have taught two new generations, millennials and Gen Z, to despise joggers. You have this very edgy and uh, very uh, repellent to, I think, a lot of mainstream people. And, I mean, like, something that I'm not 
particularly fond of either, and a lot of these tendrils creep in. And I think it's disappointing particularly because Yarvin himself was really careful to avoid a whole lot of that stuff and to try to guide people away from it. But I think because it's ideological neighbors with so many of these things, because uh, Slash Paul is in its vicinity, um, paying it vague attention to it, because other parts of these far-right movements are nearby, they all end up absorbing a sort of similar memeplex. And a lot of the things that drive people away from someplace like Slash Paul end up creeping into neo-reaction in practice and then driving people away from that as well. So is there an explanation for that close association besides their proxy neighbors in, in the culture war? I'd say the big thing to kind of understand about neo-reaction, kind of why it is the way it is, is essentially it is an apocalyptic ideology. The Ron Paul libertarian wing... Um, in 2008 and, again, more apocalyptically in 2012, we're looking at the economic numbers of the U.S. and saying, hey, hey, even beyond all this libertarian stuff of let's go back to the Lochner rules and reestablish the kind of laissez-faire rules that we had in the 1890s, early 1900s, it was, oh my god, if trend lines continue and and the debt goes insane, and, you know, all suddenly the boomers retire, and we have to pay their social security. The empire is done. Like, the nation's going to collapse. Essentially, when Ron Paul lost again, or for Yarvin lost the first time, they essentially, ex the switch flipped, and they went from, how do we stop the empire from collapsing, to what do we do when the empire collapses? And this kind of rep repeated with um with the Bernie Sanders supporters on the left where they saw twice Bernie San Sanders lost it, the first time when they thought they could actually win and the second time when they realized that no matter what it was always going to be stolen from them or blocked by the powers that be they've switched from okay how do we save America to okay what do we build in its ashes and essentially the only faction that hasn't gone through that is um, the kind of BoomerCon wing or the flyover state blue-collar wing because their outside radical candidate that they all fell in love with became president. But there still seems to be some support for Trump within, within this movement, oh, right? They support Trump based on just partisan grounds, like... I'd say Yarvin or them, they support Trump kind of the way that um, the radical left supports Biden, but maybe a bit more so because he's hostile to the deep state or the institutions that got us in, into this mess. They don't view him as a the savior fear, though. Not to, over, not to interrupt you here, but... Um, Yarvin has explicitly endorsed Biden, and his take on Trump is basically that um, Trump is the big, Trump is the biggest gift the system could ever have gotten because having Trump in power allows progressives to continue to believe that they are fighting the man, that they are um, just, you know taking down the um, evil, the evil like uh, racist patriarchy, whatever uh, exemplified by Trump. Um, so. Um, 
the sooner the Trump, the sooner the Trump is out, the sooner that uh, the progressive uh, establishment can totally exhaust itself and uh, collapse. Uh, which so more in the way that uh, someone on the left say, um, you know, the good thing about Trump is that it brings us closer to the revolution. I mean, isn't that like a backhanded compliment to Trump? I, I think it's also uh, Moldbug's line on Trump is also closer to like how um, leftists, you know, people on the far left. I mean, they will call conservatives and Trump, et cetera, like they're just kind of you're basically just a fascist. You're just not like you're just like you're just slightly removed from Nazism. Um, I don't think, at least in Moldbug's more recent statements, I don't think he would necessarily disagree with that. That like all that like it's kind of that little drop of democracy that comes in that poisons the well. Is that if you just if you take the ideas of you know, conservatism, and you just kind of extrapolate them out to their logical conclusion while keeping this kind of, uh, you know, that we have to placate the people. And I, I mean, I, I guess I say this as a quasi, I'm not really conservative, but I kind of am, is you you end up in that Nazi space if you really just start to say, well, just do everything a little bit further. And a lot of that is in Trump's, you know, his, his populism, his appeals to, you know, race and, uh, you know, it's kind of this. Uh, there's one cast, I, I guess, kind of the the warrior cast, and really just kind of the, the disaffected working class, and it's kind of them rising up against the elites. And I, I think maybe from a reactionary perspective, you could see it as well. They're an incompetent cast compared to the current elites. The elites are much better at, uh, you know, sane, responsible government. If you just want everything to collapse, then you know you could put this madman in charge. But it's not, you know. Um, it's just a consequence of democracy in the first place that he would even be on the ballot, right? It, it just isn't. It's just kind of it. It adds to the insanity of it that we would ever have Donald Trump as our leader. It just doesn't. Oh, I think you maybe misunderstood Mulbud's take there. I took him as saying that Trump is like the linchpin holding holding everything together at this point. That you know he's keeping the left believing that they're united on fighting racism and fighting the good fight, and he's keeping the right united on... you got to remember, libertarians, traditionally, especially Rothbardian libertarians, think America has been a fascist country since at least 45, probably 33, when when um, FDR was first first elected. So the Moldbug take of, oh, uh, we should support Biden so that the left becomes disillusioned illusioned and loses their narrative and the right loses their narrative as well is kind of an accelerationist take like oh yeah that would be the thing that gets us closest to the soviet union in 89 or 91 well i think it could be both but i've actually thought about this a lot is that if you if you are an accelerationist and you do think that trump is going to rile up the left then from a right-wing acceleration perspective, um, wouldn't you then vote for Trump to piss off the left so that the left can get what they want quicker? Mulberg is very much not the sort of, um, you know, what spread like the kind of accelerationist who goes off and shoots something up. He's not the sort of accelerationist who says um, we need to intensify this conflict between left and right. Um, what he thinks is that Trump is sort of um, creating the illusion of a, of a real conflict between left and right when, in fact, um, the... You know, Cotillo is still swimming left, and so getting rid of Trump, like when Trump is out of office, um, the fiction goes away. That um, it becomes clear that uh, we are not that uh, the system that the system is still slouching towards uh, collapse, and the Biden is just you know an, an American Andropov. Well, I meant in general, like not just 
because I don't think Moldbug's an accelerationist at all, really. I mean, it's, I, I think he's just trying to preserve the stability to some extent. But um, it's, you know, I, I do think it's interesting that the accelerationist figures would still vote for Biden. Like, just to me, that's a contradiction is that if you think Trump is going to rile up the left, then why would you still vote Biden? Like, do you not want the left riled up? And I guess this would apply more to figures like, I guess, Nick Land or, you know, maybe BAP or that kind of associated spheres that it seems like a contradictory thing to think. So one of my, one of my favorite dinner party tricks back when they happened is to make the pronouncement that FDR was the closest the United States ever got to fascism and then defending that hell. It works pretty well, even among progressives, because all you have to point to is to his record. Yeah, so oh I yeah, he was super fascist. <laughs> Literal yeah. concentration camps. Yeah, no, yeah, FDR was incredibly it. fascist. <laughs> all I have to say is Japanese internment camps and uh, hostile takeover of the Supreme Court, and then people were like, um... Okay, you got a point there. <laughs> and four terms, like he was <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that too. on the brink of fascism. <laughs> um, Desperately yeah, trying but, to draw the country into a world war. I think in terms of the question of um, why not vote for Trump if you want to ride the left up or whatever, uh, from my perspective in the center, as someone who really doesn't like the radical left, but also really doesn't like Trump, I feel essentially trapped into, regardless of whatever else, siding with the left until Trump is out of office. So in supporting Trump, people like neo-reactionaries who want to expand their team, who want to get something radically different in there, who aren't wedded to Trump the man, I think it's a mistake for them to push for that just because so many people in a position similar to me just end up against a lot of their things just by proxy of this is something serious enough to put aside all differences and work together until this is gone. Do we have any uh, Trump supporters? Um, I I broadly support him. I'm really terrified of what a Biden administration would do just because they have expressed, like they've been saying for years that they'd stack the Supreme, Supreme Court um, Pass gun control by exec- executive action. Essentially, all the like crazy right wing fever, fever dream stuff. They Kamala Harris especially has been like very explicit about that. And I think in twenty 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 one, when we've had everything so far, they'd be probably crazy enough to try it, or like the internal logic of the Democratic Party are trying to appease the rad left to still hates them them to death and is like plotting everything they can all already i think there's a very good chance that just the internal party logic would cause all those right-wing fever dream things to happen whereas trump we've already seen seen in the face of like three different national emergencies in which like emperor palpatine would have seized power and declared himself emperor five times by now he's just like nope nope that's that's the locality's problem that's a state problem oh you suck because you can't solve your own problems like shirking responsibility it's a very interesting endorsement of trump yeah i i love that trump will sit there and do nothing broadly like that's (laughs) the very best thing that's probably the only thing holding the american empire together at 
this point. If it was Ted Cruz doing what he wanted or Ron, Rand Paul doing what he wanted or Harris doing what she wanted, I think we'd be in civil war already. I mean, there's definitely a big sort of uh, argument. There's not a reactionary argument for Trump, but an argument for why neo-reactionaries or reactionaries should support Trump is that um, right now gridlock in the government might be the best tactical option. Um, you know, um, Trump, the a Republican administration is one of the very few things, for instance, um, keeping a social media censorship machine from really going into overdrive. Um, it's... it's um, when it keeps uh, it keeps the government from basically um, it reduces it just comes it comes up the works of a um, government slash media slash uh, university complex the whole cathedral mechanism um, keeps it uh, spinning its wheels uh, rather than um, effectively achieving what it wants which is to make the construction of alternatives impossible. Great, Jasoni, are you a Trump supporter? Ah. Uh... I've well, I, I I would say I broadly subscribe to the notion of um, pacifism, and I've kind of really over the past, I, I guess maybe year or two, I've tried to really consciously embrace just trying to exit the political process and exit having an opinion. Um, I think if somebody put a gun to my head, I honestly don't know. I mean, I do. I, I broadly think that conservative political solutions work. So, like, if Trump had a magic wand and he could, you know, keep taxes lower and, you know, except of the whole nine yards, I do think that that would be better for everybody. But I, I don't think that, um, uh, I, you know, I mean, he's just sort of he's unstable and he doesn't really have that much power. I mean, like Kulak pointed out how, well, he has these opportunities to do things. And I think that really overestimates how much power he actually has uh, because he is so hamstrung by, um, you know, just his lack of political connections, his own administration, his own party hates him. Um, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't have the political capital in any sense to get anything meaningful done. And so in some sense, he's just kind of this body that, you know, inhabits the space that, you know, riles up leftists into thinking that they're living out the Hunger Games or something. And it just doesn't, I, I don't see what it's accomplishing in a pragmatic sense. So I would probably say no, but I mean, just barely. Okay. I think that's probably a, a good point for all of us to conclude. Good job, everyone, for your marathon stamina. Um, don't forget to register to vote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>